Welcome to the Talking Herd Podcast. Today we bring you our very first podcast extra, a little unique podcast that we'll bring you from time to time. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Well, we thankfully have our first guest, uh, head golf coach, uh, men's team for Marshall University, Matt Grobe. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you. Um, you're uh, three tournaments into the fall season. Um, for folks that aren't familiar with the way college golf is formatted, uh, especially with the changes over the last several years, kind of walk us through what, what your season looks like. Well, you know, when I played college golf, the fall season was almost just kind of for fun. You would play one or two events to kind of get your kids, but our championship segment was in the spring. What they decided to do, because it was really tough to put so many events all throughout the spring and have these kids gone for three or four days at a time almost every week, that we split it up a little bit. So now every tournament you play in holds the same amount of weight, whether you play it in September or March same amount towards your ranking points, same amount towards who you beat, your overall record and all that stuff. So what they've done is they've really tried to take care of the student athlete. They've also taken care of better weather. When you're asking kids to start playing in January, that's not good for a school like Marshall because we don't, now that we've got an indoor facility, we're better, but back in the day, we had no way to get practice in. So you would just go and play your first three events and never be on a golf course other than where you were playing. And so now what it, what it does for us is I kind of front load our fall to be honest with you because kids are playing their best golf coming out of summer they don't really need much so if we can play six events which is what we're doing this fall then I've got five for us in the spring and I can delay our spring a little bit we're not starting until the middle of March so just in case the winter doesn't treat us very well we're still going to be able to hopefully get practicing by the middle of February it gives us about a month to prepare on the golf course before we got to go into competition that sounds like a, a, a change that's been really good for us well, like Marshall as you say because with our you know we're st geographically we're kind of in between all of these different regions but we're far enough north to where we get that harsh winter it delays our practice time and our ability to gear up for the spring season so it, it's been really neat to watch um, since you came in, in in the fall of 2012 and um, kind of reconfigure the schedule and we've got all these fall events now it, it's really kind of cool because it seems like we have some of our best success in the fall. We, we do. You know, it's funny because, you know, even Coach Fagan said it. Uh, he said, you know, football's, football's for the fall. You know, you and, – and I feel – I do feel bad for some of our kids because, you know, one of the reasons you come to Marshall is for the student experience. Uh, you know, so if we have a home game, I don't practice them on a home game. If we're not on the road, I want them to go. I want them to be part of the community. I want them to go over. I want them to be part of everything that we are here at Marshall. You know, luckily basketball is not a problem because we're not in season. So they can go to all the basketball games they want. But I got two kids on campus that came here because they liked having big time football. They had bigger offers at, and better offers at different places that didn't have a football team or was a 1AA type of a team uh, or FBS, whatever they call them now. But, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, not, not playing the type of football that we're playing. So now I've got kids that, you know, they were a little bit frustrated that, uh, that we were on the road this week at Memphis when we were playing Louisville at home. Uh, the seven that were here were all letting them know what a great experience it was while they were on the road. So that's the one negative about it uh, is that your kids miss a little bit about being a college student which I think for Marshall football is, is, is really cool for our guys to be able to go to those but luckily for us we come back on October 26th we're out of season so they can go to every November game and then uh, when we uh, win the Conference USA Championship in football they'll be able to uh, partake in that as well. It's pretty neat that as a coach that you're looking out for your players in that way. You, you don't always hear coaches verbalize that. Maybe they you know do it behind the scenes. They just don't talk about it. But that's, that's um, courteous, I guess, to say that, uh, uh, that you look out for your, your student athletes in that way. You should be commended for that. Uh, I noticed back when the schedule was released, uh, some wonderful courses. I get to play Colonial, uh, Firestone, and Pinehurst. Uh, is there some kind of added uh, excitement for the players to be able to play that course that they see on the PGA Tour and uh, just getting that whole experience? Well, you know, I think that as a, as a coach, what I'm trying to do is 
I'm trying to give them experiences that'll help them try to get to the next level. I mean, honestly, I've got 12 kids on the team right now, and all 12 of them think they've got a chance to go on the PGA Tour. It's their dream to go on the PGA Tour. So what can we do to help them get ready for that? Of course, I want to win college events, and I want these kids to compete. But if I can take them to Pinehurst and let them see a little bit of the history of the game, and we can go to Firestone, and they can see what's going on up there. We just went to Colonial, where Al Guyberger shoots a, you know, 59. We're, we're going around that golf course. It was so tough and windy and brutal down there. Those guys were in, were in shock that, that, that 59 was even a possibility. But I think it also, the best thing about these golf courses, if our kids will let it happen, is you can learn where you're weak. Easy golf courses or courses that aren't as traditional or don't have kind of that PGA Tour feel, you can kind of get away with a bad drive or bad irons or bad putter that week, whatever it is. At Colonial this week, we got five kids that I put back in the van that absolutely know where they're weak. And all of them have different weaknesses. Some of them, it was the wedges around the greens were awful because these little lies you get in the Bermuda rough were tough. And some of them had problems driving the golf ball because there's big trees on both sides of all the fairways. So. The great thing for our kids is it shows them where they stand and it shows them what they've got to get better in. And so I can't wait to get to the range tomorrow to start working on what we did wrong at Memphis and try to correct it before we go to Firestone. Then we'll get back from there and we'll regroup and do it all over again. Kind of a lead into what we're going to talk about in a little bit with the Ryder Cup. I've read several opinions that discuss the idea of uh, the fall college golf season being maybe more match play instead of metal play. And in the spring, you do the opposite, that it could help our guys uh, that are coming through a lot of the uh, Jordan speed. Those guys have played college, and from the time that they're growing up through all their tournaments, they're not really playing that match play. They're missing out on that experience, which it's a lot different thought process when you play match play versus stroke play. Uh, and the European success in the Ryder Cup the last 20 years, since the mid-90s, really, uh, if that would have any type of effect, if that was something as a college golf coach, you would be interested in kind of mix it up, doing uh, different events like that. Well, you know, I think we went to our national championship and we've added the match play component, which has been really successful. But honestly, that was a golf channel driven thing. They really didn't want a stroke play event where you've got players all over the course and you don't know who's leading because you get to drop your highest score. So you know, at any point, it could look like you're up two and within two minutes you could be down one because a kid makes a triple and he was a guy that you were going to keep counting his score. The, the problem is, is that when you start to look at match play, I guess the main thing that my concern would be is we're doing this for the student athletes. And if we're trying to get them ready for match play for a Ryder Cup that happens once every two years and only 12 people are going to do it, or we're really doing them a disservice. Because if these kids are going to make it on the PGA Tour or the web.com, everything's a stroke play event. Everything they're going to do for the rest of their life is a stroke play. And then once every two years, if they're one of the top 12 Americans, are they going to get into match play? So I understand people trying to figure out the whole solution and what it is, but I'm not real sure that going to match play in college is really going to help our Ryder Cup very much. We got guys that are very successful. Tiger Woods has not had a great record, and he was one of the best decorated amateur golfers match play that we've ever had. It's it's just a different animal when you get in the Ryder Cup. I've always felt like the Ryder Cup's who makes putts. They all hit the ball great. It just seems like the Europeans have just owned us on the greens the last four or five times we've played this thing. I don't think that it's an ability level. I think it just comes down to whoever makes the putts wins. And right now, we haven't been making putts, so hopefully that changes this year. Right. And I saw a video this morning on the Golf Channel, and that's exactly what they were discussing. The Europeans seem more relaxed on the greens and just confident that their putts are going to fall, and the Americans have kind of uh, not had those putts fall, and they seem to stress a little more every time they miss one and kind of adds pressure to them. I wonder, I want to throw this theory out. If you look at the last probably 12 Ryder Cups, with the exception of Valhalla in Kentucky, almost all of them have been played in a northern climate, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, which means your greens are probably slower, which probably favors European players more than American players. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I, you know, I think the other thing is, and, and, and man, I hope this isn't the case, but as a golf coach that looks at it and coaches kids and watches what's happened with the game over here, 
you get worried that sometimes maybe that we play a little bit more golf swing where in Europe they learn to play golf. And, and I think that they know how to get the ball in the hole a little bit quicker, whereas we are probably more technically sound. I, I think that when you look at the golf swings that we have that are on the American team, you're going to find guys that just absolutely powerful, beautiful, and can absolutely get it done. But when you look at the Europeans, it's kind of homemade stuff, but they know how to get the ball in the hole. And so I think that when it comes to the Ryder Cup, when the pressure gets on, the Europeans are a little bit more used to what they're doing, whereas now when you're mechanical and you're mechanical and you're mechanical, maybe it starts to falter a little bit when pressure comes on. Who knows what it is? You know, I think that we've got a pretty good system now. I like the fact that we were able to pick up a late pick and we're able to hold some captain's picks till later, and hopefully that'll pay off a little bit. I think that Paul Azinger with the pod system was probably why we played so good at Kentucky. Guys knew who they were going to play with. I think they've adopted a little bit of that with Davis Love. Um, and I think that the players are going to want to win for Davis. So hopefully we get a little bit of a switch, but you know, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's, I hope what I'm seeing is wrong, but it just seems like the Europeans play golf and we try to play, you know, golf swing almost. Good point. That's, um, probably pretty accurate too. Um, with regard to the Ryder cup, uh, since we've sort of already jumped into that, um, the Europeans have six rookies this year we only have two um we have a pretty experienced team coming back and i think davis love has been taking a little bit of out of out of context with what he said in saying that this is the best american team he feels it's ever been fielded that hasn't guaranteed a win and i think that's been misconstrued into that but on paper we should be a pretty uh, heavy favorite going in against six rookies versus our two um, do you see it sort of shaping up that way at the start? And do you see it changing as the weekend develops? Well, I think Darren Clark's got his hands full. I, you know, I think that the Europeans have usually done a really, really good job of hiding their rookies almost and making sure that they did not get into play. I, I think when you look at that, he's like, well, I've got six of them. And, and honestly, you look at Lee Westwood and you look at Martin Keimer, they're not playing great golf. But he didn't have a choice. He had to put some guys with some experience on that team to try to help those rookies along. So now, when you really look at it, he's had to take two players that maybe weren't on top form of their game just so they could try. So now if you take those two and the six rookies, you've got eight people that maybe don't have that quite either that game or that experience. So on paper, we look really good. But we've looked really good on paper before. Yeah, several times we've looked good on paper and, and – uh manage to either squander it away or just absolutely get drilled? Well, it's sports. You know, in, in sports in general, the game's not played on paper. Everything, you, you watch college football, you look at all the upsets they get. You look at college basketball and the upsets that they get. You watch golf tournaments and you know this guy's going to win and the next thing you know somebody else does. So everything, it's always easy to say what you think's going to happen, but when people start playing sport, it's, it's crazy. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, you mentioned the late captain's pick. Ryan Moore was kind of uh, almost hand-forced. Uh, Davis Love had to go with him. He's been so hot of late. There was a lot of talk about Bubba, and most of the talk around Bubba seems that he wasn't going to be a good fit because apparently he doesn't get along with a lot of people on tour. Uh, he's the type of golfer where everything has to be perfect for him to have a successful round. Uh, what is it about Bubba? Because from the outside, he seems like a decent person. I mean, he does a lot of the fundraising. He seems to have fun playing the game of golf. He seems to be really involved. It just seems to me that unless we're totally missing something, he might be a better fit for a course that's going to play 7,800 yards as opposed to Ryan Moore, who's not necessarily a long hitter that might struggle on that course, even though he's been hot the last few weeks. Uh, is that something that Davis might regret, you think, as far as maybe not always the hottest golfer is the best fit for that course or for that team? Well, I, I really believe this, and I know that everybody talks about Bubba, and and here's the thing. He wouldn't make him a vice captain if he didn't want Bubba around. I really believe it has to do with the fact that Bubba was in the top three on points and all year long has just continued to plummet. Uh, he's not playing good golf. You look at what's happened these last couple of weeks. He made it to the Tour Championship basically based on what he did early in the year. He's not playing good golf. So now you take a guy that's not playing good golf, and your fear is if he's not on his game, 
you can't really play him an alternate shot because he's going to hit the guy into some, some awful places. You could play him in the better ball. The, you, you could absolutely play him in the, in the, in the four ball competition and, and put him with somebody that might be a little bit steadier. And I think he would be fine. But I also think their hand was forced because if you're waiting until after the tour championship to make your last pick and you don't pick a hot player out of the tour championship, then why were you holding that pick? So I think they gave Bubba a chance. I really do. I think that they basically told Bubba, you need to start playing better golf. I think they were very probably upfront and honest behind the scenes and said, we need a top five finish out of you. We need a top 10 finish. We need something to show us that there's a reason we're going to grab you because we should have grabbed you the first time if we thought you had that value. And so what's that last minute pick for if it's not for the hottest player? It, this was kind of a, I think it was maybe Billy Herschel that we did not have on the Ryder Cup after he won the FedEx Cup, I believe. And that was the outcry, was why couldn't we pick him the week before? So now if we say, okay, we're going to give you that pick, and then we, do, we, we don't pick the hot player, the player that was basically toe-to-toe with Roy McIlroy all the way through the playoff and did everything he possibly could where he made a great birdie to beat him, it just made it seem like that's the guy you had to pick. I mean, to keep this going and keep that late pick, I don't think they had a choice. Speaking of hiding in the four ball, I know Kevin Van Balkenberg, who actually played football at Montana in 96 and has shared some interesting Moss stories, but he's a senior writer for ESPN, and he and several of his uh, friends in the golf industry kind of wrote a letter encouraging Davis Love to consider Tiger for that 12th spot with the idea that if he's coming back or in 11 days, he's probably ready to play. And he's a guy that's been there, he's been experienced, and he's a guy that if he's not on his game 100%, you can put him with a Dustin Johnson in a four ball and maybe get away with it. But he wondered about his experience, uh, his uh, bringing the fans out. I saw today that Tiger was just kind of hanging around and fans were going crazy as he was just watching other people go off. Uh, kind of missed opportunity maybe to bring some leadership and excitement to the team. Uh, what would you think about a tiger in that 12th spot or even in the 11th if they were picking uh with the first three captains picks well i'll tell you i'm a huge tiger fan so i'll start with that i, I like his game i like of course what he's done for the game but he hasn't done enough i mean i know he's coming back but he's come back before and it hasn't worked out uh, and i think it's really tough to tell all these guys that have fought so hard to try to go play for their country that a guy that basically hasn't played since the last Ryder cup is going to be a captain's pick. So I understand that everybody wants Tiger to be there and everybody wants Tiger to be a part of it. Uh, I'm really, to be honest with you, I'm thrilled that he's a vice captain because I think the Ryder Cup resurrected Sergio Garcia. Sergio was done. He was pretty much out of golf and he was pulled back in by, I think it was Jose Maria pulled him back in to be a vice captain. Europe wins. Sergio played a big role, got the team fired up and immediately started playing better golf. And so what I'm hoping is, I hope that Tiger goes there, is able to help these, help our team get a win, get a little bit more excitement in his own game, and then go and start having, having a really good fall is what I'm hoping. I mean, the game really needs to have Tiger back. I think when Phil Mickelson's even saying that he's hoping Tiger comes back soon, you know how much we need Tiger Woods back playing good golf. What kind of um, pairings are you looking forward to seeing uh, in the Ryder Cup? I think we can expect to see Reed and Spieth again because they did a really good job as rookies um, at Glen Glen Eagles in 2014. So I would would expect to see them again paired up. The other folks, I don't know how – I didn't get to take a very close look at their histories to see if if they've played together very much, but – in terms of like a uh, Ricky Fowler and a Zach Johnson being paired together, does that seem like a good match or uh, would you be looking to put Ricky with somebody else? Well, you know, when you look at all 12 players, I think it's tough to find two people that you would feel really comfortable putting out in any pairing. But I think that there's any pairing you could send out and feel good about it. I just, I'm not real sure. And I think that's where the captains get probably, like anything, they get too much credit, too much blame. But, you know, I think that when you look at this, the one thing that I feel good about is for two years, this is all that Davis Love's thought about. And I think that he's already got the pairings pretty much worked out in his mind as to who he wants to do four sums and who he wants to do four balls. Um, you know, you're, 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 you've got a guy like Phil Mickelson, 
And typically that guy makes everybody he plays with better. It does not matter who they pair him with, he makes him a better player. And so I think that when you're looking at that type of a thing, usually they try to pick somebody that Phil can make better. The problem is we got a really good team. There's nobody that really needs to get better. So it'll be it'll be very, very interesting to see how they do the pairings. You know, the other thought is is do you find really good, really good putters and try to put them with guys that don't putt as good? You know, you try to put bombers together in the four ball. I mean, there's just so many different varieties of what you can do. Um, Let, let's talk about alternate shot because that's a game we do not play over here very often. Mm-hmm. We do it every two years for Ryder Cup and every two years for President's Cup as a strategy. Well, let me ask this first. Have you, like when you played in college, did, did you guys ever just go out for fun and try to play alternate shot for nine holes to see what that was like? We didn't, but it might have been because nobody wanted to be my partner, so I was never invited. <laughs> it might have happened. <laughs> you know, your biggest problem with alternate shot is, I, I really think, is at some point you just got to tell your teammate, look, we're not going to say I'm sorry all day because I'm going to hit you in some awful spots. So just know that I didn't do it on purpose and let's just play golf. Uh, you know, so I, I think that you run into some some really unique situations. Uh, you know, you, you you put somebody with Phil, and he's going to hit you to places you've never been before. Some of them are going to be good, and some of them are going to be bad. I mean, you know, I remember Phil, I think, played with Zach Johnson. And afterwards, they asked Zach about it. I think it was Zach that said, well, I had irons into greens I'm not used to, and I had shots from the trees I'm not used to. So, you know, that's what you get in alternate shot. You get – you get to hit. Now, the cool thing about this alternate shot is there's some strategy. One of you has to pick the odd holes, and the other person gets the evens. So a lot of times, I don't know the course layout. I haven't looked at it yet. Where do the par fives fall? If three of them fall on evens and the only other one falls on an odd, then maybe you make your longer hit or hit on the even hole. So you just don't know how they're going to figure that out. Who's better with iron shots? You know, how many par threes are involved in those holes? And what irons are you going to have into greens from certain locations? So there's a lot that goes into alternate shot. I think alternate shot's tougher than, than four ball. Because four ball, all you got to do is tell the guys, you guys play great golf, try to make a birdie on every hole. And if you don't, make sure somebody grabs the par, force their hand, and let's just see who can make the most birdies. When it comes to alternate shot, a lot of it has to do with are you going to be comfortable? I think Zach Johnson's an awesome alternate shot partner because he's so good with his irons. All you got to do is put that guy in play, and the closer you get him to the green, the closer he's going to hit it to the hole. So I think we've got some great alternate shot players, but talk about a tough pairing for, for Davis Love to figure out how to do alternate shots. I know Phil was talking earlier about alternate shot with Tiger 12 years ago, and his issue was high, Tiger liked a high spin ball and he liked the low spin ball. And Hal Sutton told him basically two days before that's what they were doing. And Phil said he tried to learn that ball in two days and just couldn't do it along with the rest of his preparing. So that's something, there's a lot of, like you said, stuff that goes into foursomes that people don't even think of with their alternate shots. You're either going to be hitting somebody else's ball on your second shot and then you can tee off with yours since they did away with the one ball condition, I believe, for the Ryder Cup. And an interesting thing, that's what makes the Ryder Cup to me so interesting. You see... Uh, that you see the four ball and then you see the 12 singles on the last day you don't get to see a lot of match play that these days with the uh, professional golf and i wonder if it was the balls or if it was the fact that it was nike versus callaway it, it very <laughs> you, well you never know how that one went down yeah. he actually was penalized right a couple of years ago because he went to singles and didn't realize he had two different types of callaways and for singles the one ball conditions and rules so if you replace it with the same brand the same model and he didn't do that and got called out. Interesting. Well, I know very famously in 91, uh, Paul Azinger and Chip Beck got called out by um, Seve and Jose Maria because they inadvertently switched their balls. Uh, I think Azinger grabbed Beck's ball and teed off on a hole, and then Seve let him play for four holes, and Lanny Watkins kind of threw a fit on Seve and said, you can't let him play for four holes and then try to call a penalty and say that you owe us four holes. That doesn't fly. But that, those are the little intricacies about the Ryder Cup that kind of make it fun, um, uh, especially for three golf geeks like us. Well, don't 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 kid yourself for one second and think that Seve Ballesteros isn't the heart of the Ryder Cup. Hmm. The, the the Ryder Cup was 
uh, just a, a, a complete drubbing that the U.S. just beat Europe and beat Europe and beat Europe. And he's the one that put the fire back in the Ryder Cup. He's the one that, and even now when you look back at it, even Paul Azinger is a huge Seve fan now. When they were playing, they didn't like each other at all. But I think that everybody realized that without Seve, the Ryder Cup wouldn't be where it is today. He did put a lot of, uh, a lot of passion into it. Um, I think his first Ryder Cup was actually in 83. Um, he was eligible in 81, but um, he had a dispute with the European Tour over appearance money and in protest wouldn't play in 81. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, they even, when he was, um, when his health was in decline, I think in 2012, uh, they sort of dedicated the 2012 to him. And when they won, you could tell that there was a lot of emotion involved there. Jose Maria was particularly emotional. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I'm, I'm actually glad the Ryder Cup has become a little bit more civil over the last probably three to four cups. There for a while, it got a little bit toxic. Well, I, I think that there's no way that it can't be now because everybody's playing in America. Doesn't matter whether you're a European or Australian or whatever, everybody's coming to America now. It used to be that the guys that played for Europe played on the European tour. And so they traveled together and they partied together and they went on planes together and everything they did was all together. And the Americans were still very individualized and did their own stuff. Well, now the game has really come to, I mean, the PGA Tour is where everybody wants to be. They still support the European Tour and try to help it out because it was where they're from. But realistically, almost all the guys that are playing, I guarantee you have a house or something here in the U.S., they're all friends. So don't get me wrong. If Tiger and Rory are playing on the final day, they both want to beat each other. But afterwards, those two will go to dinner. It, it's completely different than it was before. And it's because you're with these guys, you're playing with them on a daily basis, you're playing practice rounds with them. And so it's really tough to go from that to hate all in one week. And I think that before the European tour was always upset about all what all the Americans had on the PGA tour. And, and so there was a definitely a clash and they felt like they were the, the little sister to the PGA Tour. Well, and you make mention of uh, most of the quote-unquote European players, they now live here. Most of them live in Florida. Darren Clark even made reference to that yesterday in his press conference saying, you know, about a half dozen of the players flew over on the Concord. The other half dozen are flying up from Florida later in the day, and he was expecting to meet them. So that's definitely um, something that's affected uh, at least the inner relationships between the teams. It's uh, um, as much fun as it is to look back on the 91 Ryder Cup, and that was kind of my first introduction to the Ryder, Ryder Cup, um, that got a little bit out of hand in terms of there were a lot of things that were done that, uh, one, I don't think it was intentional, like with the camouflage and the fatigues, uh, that kind of came off the wrong way. It came, came across a little too pro-military. Europeans didn't take kindly to it, especially in the, you know, in the shadow of the Gulf War and all that, but... Interesting stuff. But I do think that one in 91 was the one that probably got us to where we are now. I mean, you know, the same thing. You talk about Seve, you got to go back to the war by the shore. I mean, they wrote a book about it just, just to show how important that Ryder Cup was and how much the fact they came over here with a chip on their shoulder. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm a huge Fred Couples fan. So for me, that was one of the greatest, watching him and Raymond Floyd play uh, Watching Fred come out of his shell, yeah, because Fred was one of these guys that just had the reputation of being cool, calm, collected, didn't care about anything, didn't play with a lot of emotion. If he lost, oh well, there's another tournament to play. You saw him react in ways that you never saw him react before. He made this bunker shot. He flips his club, throws his hands up, starts you know kind of awkwardly the way David Duval did in '99 giving those little, <laughs> you know, kind of awkward fist pumps. And, you know, it was kind of interesting to see him come out of his shell playing with Ray Floyd. Um, that book that you talk about, I, I actually own that. I highly recommend that if anybody's a golf fan. It is a very, very interesting read. Um, to kind of circle this back around to Marshall Golf, let's catch up on – where you guys have been so far this season uh, in terms of your tournaments and look at some of your key players and um, uh, who you, some of your newcomers are. So you guys started off the season with the Joe Fagan's Invitational and you had to move that over to Barry Hills, which uh, by all appearances went off very well. It's great. It's great. Uh, EKU won it with uh, a seven under. You guys finished pretty close behind at uh, plus four in fourth place. 
for people that aren't real familiar with college golf in terms of the scoring differences, when they hear minus seven to plus four, they think, good Lord, they got crushed. It's 11 shots. Put that in perspective for us. What's 11 shots in a team competition? Well, you know, it's not much at all. I mean, you, you got to think about it. If uh, if any one of our kids, you know, we have five kids playing. If, if over three days they play two strokes better over three rounds, you know, less than one stroke per round, we're right there next to the lead. Uh, but you also can go the other way where we can fall from fourth to seventh or eighth in a heartbeat. And, you know, this week's a great example at Memphis. Uh, you have Memphis, we were in ninth going into the final round, and we played really bad. And we let three teams pass us. Now, we ended up finishing 12th, but we were only about six strokes out of like sixth place. So it got really jammed up. And, and you, you try to tell your kids all the time, and I think that what you just said is a great example. Every stroke matters because you just don't know. If every kid, and the worst thing that Golf Stats ever done, they send me a report every week. And they say, if your team was one stroke better per round, per player, you would be this ranking. And if two, this ranking. If And you're like, man, if, I, if we were two strokes better per round, we'd be like the 30th ranked team in the country. I mean, you know, so it's frustrating when you see how much each stroke matters. And that's why I try to tell the guys all the time, penalty strokes are huge. Three putts are huge. Making bad decisions off the tee are huge. I mean, everything you do, not bouncing back quick enough, which the amateur golfer knows all about. But these kids will make a bogey, and then the very next hole's a bogey because they can't get over it. And you got to tell them, hey, now the first bogey didn't cost us. It's the next bogey because you couldn't get over your anger. And then maybe the three bogeys that follow, now you've added four strokes to our team score because you couldn't get yourself back to playing golf again. So you do find that to be a little bit of a tough thing to communicate to the, to the players that every stroke does count and get over whatever happened as quickly as possible. Well, let's be real honest, okay? <clears throat> College golf is a team sport, but it's still individual. They still have an individual result. They still post an individual round. They get ranked in the tournament based on individuals. You know, if we get in the van and one of my kids has won the event, but we finished last as a team, he's still pretty happy. You know, <laughs> if we get in the van and he's finished last and we won as a team, he's pretty upset. So the team does matter. Our guys love the team and they all want to compete. But when it all boils down to it, golf is still a pretty individual sport. And these kids are really worried about themselves. So what you're trying to do is trying to tell them for you and your future and for your team, You've got to get over mistakes quicker. Interesting. Clark finished tied for seventh at the Fagans mm -hmm. at two under. Um, and then he followed that up the following week at EKU with a second place finish. How close was he to actually taking that tournament? I know he finished a stroke behind the but winner. It was, it's a really good story. I'm glad you asked. Uh, you know, we were coming down the stretch and I'm not a, I, I don't check leaderboards. I don't ever look. Uh, we've got live scoring, so I can look on my phone. And some coaches are always on their phone all the time. But I've always felt like if the guys see that I'm nervous, they're going to know that we're either playing good or playing bad. If if I look down, I'm afraid that they'll think, oh, my gosh, we're playing bad. You know, coach is upset. So I don't even look at scores until we get down towards the end. Well, Clark made the turn, and we were finishing on the front nine, and he went eagle birdie birdie. And I went, oh, my gosh, I think he's close to the lead. So I check. I went and got one of my uh, one of the parents was there, and I'm like, "Are you watching live scoring?" They're like, "Well, yeah, coach." I got. I said, "What's Clark?" And they're like, "He's one down with one hole to play." I said, "Okay, good enough." So I go back to the tee box, and it was a tight par four that Clark hits driver on and just bombs it. I mean, he is. It's a 380 yard hole, and he usually has 40 yards left, but it's very tight driving. And so I get on the tee, and I'm like, "I, I can't tell him right now before he hits this impossible tee shot." So I waited. And he hit this perfect drive. And I walk over and I said, Clark, you want to know where you stand? And he says, yeah, coach, where do I stand? I said, you're one down right now, but that guy's got two holes to play. You've got this one. He's got two. He's on the other side. So I can't tell you what's going to happen. He hit it up to about 10 feet on a second shot, lipped out the putt, ended up making par. While that was going on, the other kid made birdie. So he ended up losing by two. So it wouldn't have mattered whether he made birdie or not, but I've got some kids that want to know and some that don't. So uh, he was right there. He had a, he had a chance, but um, he, had a, he had a great drive and a great, great wedge shot in there. 
and and Clark's won before. He, um, I, I'm sure he was probably pretty disappointed that you guys weren't going back to the Patriot in Virginia. You guys hit that uh, two consecutive years, and he won his first year and finished, I think, second the following year. He, he did, and uh, he likes the golf course. It's one of those ones he can overpower. I mean, he hits the ball so far. Uh, he can overpower. You know, it, it, it's where they hosted the pub, the last pub links. I think. You know, the oh, pub really? links is gone now. They've gone to the 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 four ball uh, U.S. I guess the U.S. Amateur four ball. They got rid of the pub links, and, the, and so uh, that's the course it was played on. Well, uh, Clark just ate it alive. I mean, he just ate it alive, and so I think he was happy. We we got in <clears> Memphis. I mean, we got invited to Memphis for the first time, and it's kind of tough to turn down Colonial, even though we really like Lord a lot. So. Uh, We'll have to wait and see if we go back next year. And speaking of Memphis, you know, look, looking at the scores at Memphis compared to some of the other tournaments so far, EKU tournament, EKU the host, won at 12 under. Uh, this week at Memphis, Little Rock won at plus 31. How tough was the setup at that course? It really wasn't the setup per se. You know, the, the problem we ran into, and I've never had this before in college golf, we showed up for our practice round. On uh, Saturday, we got in on Saturday. We played our practice round on Sunday, and it was 100 degrees, and it was blazing hot, and the kids were walking. I mean, it was really hot. And then we woke up the next morning, and it was 60 degrees, and the wind was blowing 30 miles an hour. And so we had not prepared for that at all. I mean, we it, we, we knew that it was going to be overcast, and we knew the temperatures were going to be in the 70s, but they were forecasting winds between 5 and 10 miles an hour. We wake up, and it's 25 to 30. Uh, and some of the hole locations were in places where they weren't expecting 25 to 30. So you had some putts where uh, there was a couple holes in particular where I did not leave the green. I stayed there to make sure the guys knew if you hit it above this hole, you're going to three putt. You know, you, there's no way to stop this. It's downwind, it's downhill, and there's a ridge right past the hole. And so that was just a brutal day. You know, the last day, honestly, it, it sounds bad because we played the worst we played. The last day, the weather was perfect. I mean, it could not have been better. The temperatures were in the 70s, rose to the 80s. There was no rain, no wind, no nothing. We just didn't play good, and that happens. Uh, usually, we're a good third-round team, so I, I try to just kind of take it as guys were probably trying to make a move. We thought we really could move up, and we, we started up golf to a really bad start. Uh, I knew we were in trouble, and I kind of wanted to see what the team would do if we'd fight back. And we fought back really well. So I was really proud of them. But then the last three holes, we played awful again. We just finished really weak. And the problem is, could have been a little bit of my fault. Could have been some coaching. Uh, I'm afraid I didn't talk to them too much about it. And when I go back and look at it, um, we played a par five, and then a short par four, and then a par five. And we're one of the longer hitting teams in the country. And I think our guys got those final three holes thinking they could abuse them and kind of went after them maybe too aggressively. And each guy played them between like two and five over and it just killed us. I and mean, we just we just plummeted. Uh, so, I, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, with coaching, you're learning every day about your kids. And I think that I probably should have told them, make sure that we make par, but if you could make a birdie, great. And I think instead they were going after eagles and birdies and trying to get real aggressive. And we got ourselves, we fought so hard to get it back and then just let it go. Before we touch on a few of the individual players, let our audience understand how college golf is set up in terms of the regional system. Um, how they do the rankings and how you get selected to the NCAA Yeah, well, they, they, they finally got away from regionals. Uh, you know, there, there is a regionals where you go to, but it's based on selection. So it used to be that anybody in the Northeast, you would get like 16 teams from the Northeast. The best 16 teams would move on. Now they have a Northeast region, but teams can come from all across the country. It's just the top. Basically, the t if you win your conference championship, you're in. That's the first thing. So it's almost like March Madness. You win your conference tournament, you're going to the regional somewhere. Um, and then it's the top, usually 62 to 65 teams. The field ends up being 81 teams total. So you get your 16, you know, 16 or so automatic teams, and then you're going to get, you know, 65. Now, let's say, for example, Wake Forest is ranked number one or two in the country. They win the ACC. So now the ACC was already going to have that team in anyway. It's the, it's the conferences that maybe the 220th ranked team wins the conference championship. Now they get an automatic spot, and so that kind of bumps the top 81. Now 81 falls off, and then 80 usually gets its way down somewhere between 62 and 65, and then they start to snake it. 
So they, they, they try to keep teams as locally as they can, but they try to be real fair. If you're the number one seed and we're going to keep you pretty close to home, then they're going to go one here and then they got six other sites and then they're going to work their way back the other way. So you're going to end up with the 12th ranked team. So if you're one, you're also going to have the 12th in your region and they might be from Maine. So, you know, Arizona could be in Arizona and then Maine could have to fly down. And so you, they, they stopped getting away from trying to make them all local because they felt like we were putting too many teams like, you know, from Florida. You take all those great teams from Florida and make them play in one regional. And then you take all the teams from the north. The, all the, Everybody felt like it was unfair. So now they just said, look, we'll just take the rankings and we'll just we'll just bracket it just that way and put them all in the regions and then the top five teams make it out every region. Okay. Do they have a committee that selects all the teams and ranks them? Is that they, they do, but it basically goes off golf stat. It's right off golf stat. I mean, there's okay. no they don't it, it used to be guys sitting in a room, but you know, the problem is is that the, How can you see all those teams? It, well, it's not even that. There's always going to be human error. I mean What's going to happen here in December? They're going to talk about the four teams that got chose. There's always going to be complaints about why five and six did not get into the National Football Championship. That's always going to happen. And so when you put people in a room and have them decide things, when the computers have already ranked the teams pretty good in golf, I mean, they're, they're really accurate. If that's the case, then why would you ever flip off of that? Now, the last rule I didn't bring up is it's called a 50-50 rule, and it's to help the smaller programs like Marshall in the fact that you must have a 500 record. Uh, so what used to happen is teams like in the top 10 would all travel the country and play each other. Well, the problem is the 10th team might not – they might finish 10th every time, but the strength of field was so strong that they would look really good on paper and they'd be ranked 40th in the country even though they'd finish 10th in every event they'd played in. And they said, no, no, you've got to have a 50-50 record. So it makes some of those schools – like Virginia Tech came and played at the, at the, at the Marshall Invitational, Joe Fagan's Marshall Invitational. They end up finishing second. They left here with a record of 15 or 14-1. and one. So that helps them now when they go play a more challenging field and maybe finish middle of the pack. They picked up 14 wins here and one loss. And that's why sometimes we'll get some big teams in here. We'll get some Ohio States, some Virginia Techs, some bigger type teams will come and play. Wake Forest came a couple years ago. Their feeling is if they can get in here, have a chance to win the tournament. Worst case, they play bad. They still get a second or third place finish. They're going to pick up 13, 14 wins. Cool. Interesting. Um Let's take a um, quick look at some of your uh, players. Um, we've talked about Clark, Clark Robinson. He's a senior from uh, Connecticut. How did you end up finding Clark? It, you, it's always kind of interesting to find guys that are out of our region that come here and play. Well, here's the thing. When I was interviewing for the job, uh, part of my research was looking at the, for the players in West Virginia. Uh, so when I first came in here, I wanted to be able to talk about West Virginia golf. Uh, and I found Will Evans. I mean, great kid. I knew his dad. Dad was a heck of a player. We, Mary, we, yeah. were, we were friends back in the day. Uh, it was always somebody I looked up to. I was just a young assistant when he was the, the head pro up at Berry Hills. And so I knew that Will Evans was a target. And the moment I stepped on campus and immediately passed my recruiting test, the very first thing I did was went and watched Will play like three times. Uh, and every time I watched Will, he shot in the mid-60s. He played so good the three times I watched him. I felt like I should follow him his whole high school career because he was on fire with me there. <laughs> you so, were his good luck charm. Exactly. So he signed in the early signing period with us in November. So he was the first kid I ever brought to campus. Uh, and then I started looking for one more. I knew I needed to bring one more kid in. And uh, IMG had called me, and they said they had a kid down there they thought was pretty special. And so I flew down and watched him play in a tournament down in January in Florida, and it was Clark. And I went to the instructor, and I said, you know, I like everything about his game. At that time, Clark's wedges weren't great. Uh, he was hitting the ball really far, great touch putting-wise, but his chipping was kind of you know, a little bit suspect. You know, he'd have a basic chip shot and hit it to 10 feet. And sometimes he'd make the putt, but 10 feet's a little bit further out. I told the Coach, I said, you know, if you can work on his wedges, this kid's going to be something special. He said, Coach, it's all we'll work on this whole semester. And so we had Clark come in on an official visit. The, the, the team liked him. He liked Marshall. Um, and so we offered him, and he signed in the spring with us. IMG worked those wedges. I mean, he came in. His wedges were probably one of the best parts of his game when he came in. They, they really did exactly what the coach promised me he would do. They worked the wedges, and and, uh, and Clark came in. So then the, that was Clark. And then the next year, we went out and found Alex. Uh, you know, Alex is a junior right now. And really, to be honest with you, Alex 
was a kid that was a baseball kid and he was a golf kid. And I really thought that once he focused on golf, he could be something special. So my whole idea behind him was to get him to focus on golf, not baseball. He had some division three and division two baseball offers, was a really good baseball player. But I just thought that's a kid that we've got a chance to make a good golfer because he won't be playing baseball anymore. He'll drill down on one sport. But I thought it would take a couple of years. I thought he was a work in progress. I thought that by the time he was a junior like this year, well, he came as a freshman, he's made every tournament. I mean, he's never missed a tournament for us. And very steady. Oh, steady, incredible, great short game, great kid, gotten longer as time's gone on. And so sometimes as coaches you miss. I mean, sometimes you think it's going to take a kid a while to develop, uh, and, and he comes in and surprises you. And I've had some others that I thought were going to come in immediately play, and they, they end up having to develop. So Will 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 has, and he's, he's trying to learn right now. Uh, it's, it's weird I say that a senior's learning, but I think in golf you're always learning. Right. Um, Will has the ability, you know, West Virginia Open, it was at Berry Hills two years ago. He starts off with a 66 and follows it up with like a 78 or 80. Um, did it again this year. We were at Eastern Kentucky, uh, and Will starts off with a 65 or 66. He's leading the tournament. Uh, plays nine more good holes, two under, and then and then the wheels kind of came off a little bit. So I told Will, what I was really proud of is, is you're getting better. The fact that you made it to the next round and got through that front nine shows us that you're getting a little bit better at being able to continue to go low. Uh, Clark. Clark has just a look about him, and so does Alex. When they start getting hot, uh, as a coach, I know that the best thing I could do is probably go to the parking lot. I stay out there, <laughs> you know. It's uh, they start clicking, and you know things are things are going to be special. Um, so those three guys are basically your pillars right now. They are. You're rotating a couple of new guys in. Tell us about a couple of your new guys. Well, we're we're trying. I mean, you know, we, we we've already played. Uh, I think we've played six guys on the back end of the lineup, trying to get those guys help right now. Uh, Cole Moore um, uh, is out of Roan County here in West Virginia. He's a kid that came as a as a walk on. He and his twin brother Camden are both on the team. Camden qualified for the Joe Fagans. Cole qualified for Eastern Kentucky and Memphis. Uh, and Cole's going to be going with us to Firestone. Cole's a really solid player. Uh, you know, it's it's tough having twins because they've yet to qualify for the same tournament. So it feels like I'm always taking one and leaving one. And so I always tease the other one. I say, you know, your brother's going to be lonely on the road. You need to qualify for these trips. And I know, Coach, I'm going to work hard. But two great kids. The, the dad, uh, the dad Richard Moore, plays a lot of uh, senior events here in, in, in the state. Really good player. Uh, just a really solid family. And so, and then Owen Elliott's another West Virginia kid that we've got here. Uh, he's from, he won the West Virginia Junior uh, Championship as a, after his junior year in high school. And he's really solid. And then we got a couple other uh, freshmen. You have Ben Roder from Michigan, who's a red shirt for us right now. Uh, ben, we're looking for really good things out of him. He's got the experience. He's got a, a beautiful swing. Everything he does is pretty good. Uh, scores haven't been what we expect out of him, but I think it'll get better. All these guys, you feel like pretty high ceiling in terms of where they can go? Yeah, I hope so. I'm not going to look like a very good coach if I don't get them there. Um, you know, the problem is, is that, and this is, this is where we are right now, we've got two seniors, a junior, and eight freshmen. You're young. Yeah, we're, we're very young. So this eight, this group of eight is growing up. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to find a couple of these guys that can step up uh, and, and help these other three get better as the year goes on. You know, the problem is we went to Eastern Kentucky and Alex didn't play very good. And when Alex doesn't play good or Clark doesn't play good or Will doesn't play good, we're in trouble because now we have to count both freshmen. Uh, the other one, A.T. Cashwell. Uh, A.T. is a senior of transfer out of Pfeiffer University down in Charlotte. Uh, and A.T. has a chance to be really good for us. Great ball striker. Uh, has all the tools. Uh, you know, the guys on the team watch him play. And, and he's one of those ones that, it, unfortunately, as a coach, it's frustrating because I see his ability. And the ability is a mid-60s to high-60s type of a shooter. And he finds ways to keep it in the mid-70s. And so, you know, as a coach, I'm trying to do all I can to, to make that ability become on the scorecard. And so with AT, I think it's just really more getting comfortable uh, not getting nervous, not getting out of his way when things start to go the, the, the wrong way. Kind of the final couple of things, Chuck touched on this um, earlier. You're going to Firestone, then you head up to Pete Dye to take part in the Mountaineer Inter Intercollegiate. 
And then your final tournament in the fall is at Kennesaw State. Kennesaw State looks like they're a pretty tough program. You know, our problem is, you know, for, for having three guys, I felt really good about. I probably overscheduled us a little bit. Um, you know, we're playing some we're playing some team and some I mean this last tournament we went to, there was several teams inside the top hundred. I mean it was a very, very tough tournament for us to go, try to play a course we've never played, driving nine hours to get there, nine hours home. I mean, you know, it was just it was probably a little bit too much to ask for a young team early in the year. But uh, at the same time, that's the only way we're going to get better. So, you know, we, yeah, we're going to go take our lumps at Firestone, and, and, and we might even do the same thing at Pete Dye and the, and the same thing down at Kennesaw State's event. But the good news is I think that we'll improve. I think we'll go up to Firestone. I think we'll play better. And I think we'll play better when we go to Pete Dye. I think we'll go better. Our, our goal, honestly, is to win our conference championship. That's how we're going to get into regionals. I mean, the odds of us producing a top 60 team every year – when you look at the teams that produce that stuff and the facilities they've got and the, everything they've got, it's not realistic to believe we're going to be inside the top 60 every year. So for us, we've got to ramp up and get our kids ready to go to Texarkana at the end of the year and have a chance to win a conference championship. And to do that, we got to challenge ourselves. And sometimes that's not a whole lot of fun, but uh, you know, sometimes we got to play against a competition that's above us so that our guys will rise. You can always play in events where you can win. I could put together a schedule right now where we win every week. It's not going to help us at the end of the year. Right. Um, kind of the final thing in the spring, we've got the Greenbrier Invitational. Uh, that's a shared hosting event between Marshall and Bowling Green. How does Bowling Green State University get involved in that? Well, it was great. Uh, yeah, Kevin Farrell took the job at Bowling Green when I took the job here. And we and he was his first event was here. And so he and I talked a lot and we just became friends. And his the president of Bowling Green is from is from White Sulphur Springs. She grew up at the Greenbrier and has tons of contacts there. And she's the one that told him that she'd like to host an event there. So he contacted me and said, hey, would you be okay with it? I said, yeah, but I host an event, I really can't do a whole lot for it. And he said, why don't you be in charge of the rules and the golf course and the setup and all that stuff, and I'll take care of the hotel and the meals and all that. So that's how we co-hosted. Unfortunately, because of the flooding the Greenbrier had, we had to postpone this year's. So we're going to have to find a new a new tournament for us. We're going to bring it back in 2018. We thought about trying to move it to some other places. You know, Beckley, of course, came up and, and Glade Springs and some other places like that. The problem is the weather in April is already a little sketchy. And when you start moving it closer to Beckley, you start worrying a little bit more about the weather. And so we figured we'd take a year off. It's the Greenbrier Intercollegiate. We want to keep that going. So we'll take a year off, and then we'll get back to it in 2018. So instead, you'll have three spring events in the Conference USA tournament. And I've got to find one more. We'll find, oh, we'll, find, we'll, one. we'll okay. find something there at the beginning of April. We can't come back at the end of March and not play for a whole month. So I've got to find something in April to put us in. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. It's been a, a real thrill. It's always fun for us to sit and talk golf with somebody, and hopefully we can turn this into maybe a semi-regular thing. Yeah, whatever you need me, I'd love to come on. Excellent. Thank you. All right, thank you, guys.